all this talk about cyborgs and software and data and the future brings in some of those really big issues because I think this is as, as large a transformation as when we first got into coding and we can see how much that transformed the world. Welcome to the Amplifying Cognition podcast, formerly the Thriving on Overload podcast. I am Ross Dawson, a futurist and entrepreneur fascinated by the unlimited potential of the human mind. Each week, I speak to incredible people who are working on how we can get to next-level thinking, sense-making, and decision-making so we can keep ahead in an accelerating world. My guests share how they amplify their productivity, the success of organizations, and the potential of humanity by using an array of technologies, including AI, innovative processes, and sometimes simple everyday practices. I do this podcast to learn. I learn so much from every guest I speak to, and I'm sure you will too. If you are intent on amplifying your cognition, simply go to amplifyingcognition.com to access a trove of useful resources, including the Humans Plus AI learning community, resources and downloads from my book, Thriving on Overload, the Thought Weaver app, which allows you to interface more effectively with AI, transcripts from all of our podcast episodes, and far more. That's amplifyingcognition.com. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to hear more and help others to find the podcast by liking or sharing. It makes a massive difference, so thank you. On this episode, we learn from Jerry Mikalski, an amazing thinker, connector, advisor, and speaker. Jerry is the first person I've invited back onto the show because he has a very obvious choice to kick off the Amplifying Cognition uh, portion of this podcast. Back on episode five, Jerry and I discussed how for over 25 years, he has curated and connected all of the ideas he has found, and he shares his brain uh, publicly. And I strongly recommend uh, going back to listen to that episode as well as uh, what we've uh, talked about today. In today's conversation, Jerry and I have found that our paths have been converging even more around the theme of amplifying cognition. And Jerry shares some fabulous insights on topics including ethical cyborgs, is building a community for ethical cyborgs, uh, extensions to human capacity, augmenting versus replacing, amplifying uniqueness, peak knowledge, fractal conversations, steel manning, and far more. So keep listening. Uh, It's a wonderful conversation, and uh, Jerry has an immense amount to share. Jerry, it's amazing to have you back on the show. It's very exciting to have another conversation with you. Thanks for the invite. So it's almost two years since uh, you were one of the first guests on the uh, show, very obvious uh, guest, and you are very obvious to sort of relaunch uh, Amplifying Cognition. So what are you thinking about? What are you doing? What are you delving into these days? So it's funny, we were just comparing notes a little bit, and it seems like my path is converging with your path uh, as we speak, even. It's very fun, because um, I realized not that long ago that I'm more of a cyborg than anybody I know, because I externalized more of what I think into this brain software that I use. Um, And I find it incredibly useful and usable. And even though it's called the brain, it has no AI in it. So I'm not, that has not been an experience for me of using generative AI or any of the models that we're talking about here. But oh my gosh, those things are all completely complementary. So, so my general notion is that the future of work is cyborg. We're going to have to learn how to meld well with, with technology. And that means we're probably going to have to figure out how the tools work and how to incorporate them in our lives, but also 
um, the ethics of this stuff is really important. And so the other piece of what I'm working on is standing up uh, a community of cyborgs uh, who are trying to work together to figure out, hey, how do, what does this next generation of, of work look like? And how do we do it in some ethical way so that maybe our efforts are making the world a better place instead of destroying it? So how, how would you define cyborg? Um, so I'm, I'm, I was torn between cyborg and centaur. Centaur does not roll off the tongue. People don't all know, know what centaurs are. But oh my gosh, Cyborg immediately brings to mind Arnold Schwarzenegger in Terminator 2, which is totally the wrong image. But that's that's funny. And I like that that's the first thing because I'm like, and I don't mean the robots from Skynet that are going to come to kill us all. I just mean extensions to uh, human capacity. And I'm not even talking about biological extensions. At this point, I'm mostly talking about software. But that biological stuff is just on the horizon. It's not that far off. The man brain-machine interface stuff uh, isn't that far off. I don't know where, where it's going to go. A lot of it is going to be for making up uh, deficits. When somebody loses capacity, it's, that's where prosthetics go a lot. Um, so I think we're a longer way from, I think, something, and it's manifest in the world. Um, but that's not that far up. But for now, it's like we need to integrate better with software. So you talked about cyborg in a work context. I mean, I'd want to delve into that, but perhaps, perhaps pull, let's pull back as well as what happens when we become uh, cyborgs. It's funny because when this whole chat GPT thing got exciting and, and heated up, I was having a conversation with my friend Pete Kaminsky, and I said to him, so Pete, are you losing your boundaries? Are you having any boundary issues? Because one of the things that comes up right away is uh, if you share information or if you start a conversation with ChatGPT, where do you end and where do you start? If you take the results of a query and you turn that into your essay, what did it create? What did you create? All there's, there's sort of a lot of interesting boundaries about where are the borders of the participants anymore. Um, so that, and that's just one of several different layers of things that start to show up. Um, the other one, obviously, is, is my job going to be automated? Uh, there's a phrase here I really like, augment versus replace. Um, Doug Engelbart famously gave us the uh, aug augmentation of humans was his goal. And I think that's a fantastic goal. And I don't know where we lost his thread, but but we're busy, we're busy trying to automate jobs out of existence when I think what we should be doing is make tasks go away, but help people do more powerful things together. So in a, let's, let's say, organization of today, and suddenly they've got ChatGPT. Uh, so, as individuals, well, let's, there's two frames. Let's say individuals and organizations. And it seems to be starting with individuals. So let's start there. So, let's say person says, "All right, I will make myself a cyborg so I can be better at my job." How does that work now? It's interesting because I, I probably have a not quite unique, but a, a quirky outlook on this because I've been feeding this mind map for 25 and a half years. Um, so I have a, a highly developed public external web of everything I believe in. And one of the questions that's coming up right now is, is note taking obsolete? Should we get, should, should we stop taking Tiago Forte's build the second brain course or, uh, or things like it? And, and to my mind, because of my personal experience, I think it's an extremely dangerous course of action to give up on personal note-taking and contextualizing our things ourselves and decide, I'm just going to ask ChatGPT and it's going to give me the answer because it's going to increasingly know everything and be able to organize things. Like magically, it'll come up with the eight categories that perfectly map to some domain that I'm curious about or trying to write about. And, and 
the tools are scary powerful at doing things like exactly like that. Um, so I'm very interested in that boundary between my between individual note taking, note sharing with other people to build some kind of collective intelligence, and how all of that folds in with this new set of intelligences that are outside of us, but they're only smart because they've swallowed everything humans have ever written. I, I think one of the really important pieces here is our uniqueness. And we're all absolutely unique humans. And one of the things is we think uniquely. Uh, so we need to, to accentuate you know, you know, our own uniqueness in how it is we think. The, you know, that's the diversity of mental models. Cognitive diversity is what we look for in organizations. So we don't want all to be thinking exactly the same. And if we all outsource our thinking to GPT, then in fact, we will be thinking all exactly the same. So to amplify our own uniqueness, I think, as you say, we need to have our own mental models. And that means capturing our own thoughts and yeah, and our own notes and how they fit together in our own unique way. Uh, that's, I think, pretty, pretty important. I had a fun conversation with somebody yesterday on a walk um, where he was saying that it seems like like uh, generative art is kind of converging on a, on a particular aesthetic. And maybe that aesthetic will change over time as as the tools get a little finer grained and better. But also, but but he was worried that we were going to turn everything into pudding. Basically, you know, it's, it's like an intellectual gray goo scenario where, where all of a sudden everything winds up kind of being the same. And I, I think that humans do provide sort of the, the spice and uniqueness in the mix. But also I argued for some of these AIs where you can tell the AI to take very different perspectives. I mean, one, one way to actually bring more voices in the room is to ask your AI to represent indigenous ways of knowing or a particular indigenous group and say, hey, you speak for these people that I can't, I don't have anyone in this room who understands that perspective, but see if, see if that won't help us think of something a, a bit differently than we normally would. No, that, that, that's a great uh, use. So just uh, yesterday I was sharing about this new software, which apparently can predict uh, music hits with 97% accuracy. And again, obviously that's pretty dangerous where, if suddenly uh, the only thing we get is uh, what is supposed to be hits and uh, we lose lose the rest. But I, I don't think that's going to happen. I think we, we our musical tastes are, uh, are diverse enough and we will express our uniqueness in, in what we listen to, I hope. Well, there's this, there's, this, there's this problem that several people are worried that the outputs of generative AI are going to be fed into the search engines and are going to become the new inputs for everything. And then the snake will eat its own tail. It'll be like the, the famous Ouroboros. Um, and that is not out of the question that, that we start to not, that, and some of the dangers in that scenario are that we start to lose the difference between fact and fiction, because we will be feeding hallucination, hallucinations into the system as if they were facts, and then all hell breaks loose. Um, so one of the early posts was, have we passed peak knowledge? Is, is this the end of the golden age when we suddenly have query engines where we can search everything and most everything humans have written is now in the system? But uh oh, now we're breaking that. So this, I think, comes back almost precisely to the cyborg piece, as in, uh, we, you know, we both have come, independently come up with the phrase "how to be a better cyborg." So, uh, how, Jerry, could we become better cyborgs? Um, so, part of it is understanding how the tools work and what the tool limitations are, and not getting, not becoming the lawyer who submitted a brief that they fact-checked using the tool that generated the hallucinations and therefore 
got themselves really embarrassed in public a, a month or two ago. You don't want to be that guy. And there's a lot of ways to avoid those errors. Another And understanding how the tools work and what their limitations are lets you then use them well to generate creative first drafts of things, to do uh, you know a whole series of, of really things. One of the enemies of mankind is the blank sheet of paper. And so many people are given an assignment and they're like sitting down and it's just like, ah, no, and then you ball up two words and you throw it in the trash. And, and here, all of a sudden, you can have six variants of something put in front of you. We need to become better editors of generated text. Then the other piece of being a better cyborg is not about being a lonely cyborg, but what does it mean to be in a collective of cyborgs? What does it mean to be in a cyborg space? What does it mean to co-inhabit um, cyborg intelligence with other people and other intelligences that are just going to get faster, better at this thing, right? And so I think, I think it's really urgent that we figure out the collaboration side of this. Um, so we don't think of it only as, well, we gave everybody a better spreadsheet and now everybody's making a lot of spreadsheets. This is different. This is different in type. And the third thing I would bring in is the ethics of it, which is, boy, it's easy to misuse these tools in so many ways. And unless we understand A, how they work and what they're doing, but B, have some better notion ourselves of what is right and what is wrong to do, and some relatively strong idea of what is right and what is wrong to do, then this is going to evolve. I think uh, there's one school of thought, uh, Bill Joyce said this years ago, uh, there is no more privacy. Forget about it. Privacy is overrated. Um, and the other realm is like what the EU is doing right now with new privacy regs. They're really working hard to try to figure out how to protect us from having our data just sucked out of our lives and used to, by other people to manipulate us in our lives, which is what capitalism wants to do. So it's not as easy as I'm going to get good at Photoshop and become a really, or, or Final Cut or whatever, and, get, and, and become an ace with some software. And, and, I, and I point to those kinds of people as the early cyborgs. I'm like, if there's any piece of software that you, where you no longer think of the commands, maybe you're a spreadsheet ace and you do these massive, incredible models with pivot tables and, and who knows what, and, you, and the software you've internalized so well that it doesn't even come to consciousness, you're kind of, you're down this road of cyborgness. But this is more complicated than that because the issues uh, are so important and because we can now collaborate and communicate better all of those issues. So there's a few layers in uh, the ethical, being an ethical cyborg. One is being aware of the concept of ethics in the first place. Another is the desire to be ethical. Another is knowing how to do it. Uh, so the so as people become cyborgs, amongst other things, they have greater power. This amplifies our capabilities. <clears throat> which arguably makes uh, ethics more important. So how do we go through those layers of, I suppose, making people aware that they could or should be uh, approaching the world ethically, how learning how to, what are the principles and, and actually putting that into practice? If you'll permit, you just reminded me of a, of a story from long ago, and then there's another thread about the word consumer that I'll bring in. Um, I went to Wharton Business School a really long time ago, and I was on the Dean's Advisory Board my second year, and I said, gosh, it's, it's really nice that we have a six-week-long kind of ethics course that are, that's mandatory, but when you're in the ethics course, everything looks like an ethics case, and you answer everything ethically because that, you're in the ethics course, duh. The only way to teach ethics is to hide it in the curriculum through every course. 
you, you, you must redesign courses everywhere so that one of the tasks in any course is for a student to stand up and say, hey, we could do this, but it would be wrong, and here's why. So, so number one, I think we need to figure out how to make people aware and how to hide the broccoli is the wrong metaphor, but, but basically uh, make sure that people um, have drills or the, the capacity to, when the Toyota production system, one of the things was any worker on the line could stop the line because quality. And, and they taught that and it worked. And in Japan, where you don't want to stand up and you, you know, the, the nail that's poking up will get hammered down, it worked. It really worked because it was a sense of shared responsibility for the whole process. Awesome. Then the second thing is, um, there are ways in which we do things that are unethical that we don't even notice because we've normalized them so much. And my whole journey f- starts 30, 35 years ago when I realized I don't like the word consumer. And I can point to a couple briefings like 93, 94, where I realized this word really bothers me and it's a major issue. And then later, maybe a decade later, I realized we had consumerized every sector of human activity, which meant we were treating people as just people to control and manipulate as opposed to as citizens with whom to engage in this activity. And I can go in a hundred directions from that point, but being aware that that is a problem and that things that you're busy coding or doing might actually be contributing to the problem instead of fixing it is another piece of this puzzle. And I'm very interested in provoking and maybe facilitating Mm -hmm. some of those conversations so that we can all be having these conversations and start to realize we've got choices. And, and maybe we can collect, maybe between your community and my community, we can collect up in, enough voices and several other people's communities uh, to go have an effect when legislation is being drawn, when companies try to do things, et cetera. That would be a great thing. So I mean, just picking out of that, it's, it's, you know, it suggests that the path to the ethical cyborg is significantly conversations. It's very social, shockingly um, collegial and social. It's lovely, very much. Yes, well, we can't put everybody in the world in an ethics workshop. And uh, to your point, that's not necessarily the best way to get there. Right. And, and one of the things, the three words I've heard kill more good ideas are it won't scale. And what we have in mind usually when we say scale is like industrial scale. And when Intel is busy creating a new fab, they, they put up like a dozen lines for production, and then they tweak all the variables, they pick the best producing, the best yielding line, and they say, replicate exactly all the settings, on all the devices on this line, and you will get lots and lots of chips out the other end. Human systems are not like that whatsoever. Uh, we are flaky, we are fluky, we are weird, but we also are very social. And when you so I, I prefer the terms adaptive or fractal scale, by which I mean lots of conversations can happen at lots of scales, down to four people, three people at a time. The same thoughts can be had over and over and over again. It doesn't bother anybody. And that scales because when I mean scale, I mean influencing or touching a whole lot of people. I don't mean telling everybody to do the same thing to get the same results. Those are two very different ways of thinking about scale. And so if we want to have something contagious, you know, the, the free hugs meme is contagious. It's viral uh, in a very cheap way. Because once you've seen this, the, the thing, a video of somebody giving free hugs, you're like, oh, that's cool. And it's in your brain now. How do we, how do we take these issues and not oversimplify them, but make them that kind of palpable in our lives? Very quick break to point you to amplifyingcognition.com. 
You'll find our stack of resources to help you get to next level thinking, sense making, and decision making, including the Humans Plus AI learning community with extensive courses and events, free downloads from my book Thriving on Overload, the Thoughtweaver app to achieve more with AI, productivity programs for individuals and companies, and far more. Now back to the show. So what do we need to understand when we are dealing with an ethical cyborg as opposed to an ethical person? Um, and that's a crazy interesting question. Uh, so, for example, um, if you ask GPT to name 10 philosophers, it'll name 10 dead white guys, a couple of whom might be alive. You have to say, hey, GPT, name uh, 10 Islamic philosophers. Oops, those will still be guys. Um, but but if you but if you say what about you know other sorts of indigenous wisdom or women it will come up with a great list of people but you need to prompt it because there's bias built into the system's uh, web of meaning because the the Western canon the human canon contains so much bias anyway and it's extremely hard to purge that out of the system so an awareness of the bias and and of some ways of to circumvent or neutralize or improve on the bias are really crucially important. Uh, and that's, that's just one of the ways we have to kind of walk into this. Yeah, well, for example, I was, when I was looking at my map of intelligence, uh, intelligence, how, how do we view intelligence? So I had to really dig uh, into, you know, GPT was an incredible, incredibly useful tool in finding, you know, female and diverse perspectives on intelligence. Trouble was, it was always hallucinated. <laughs> so, Oh, so too bad. To, to get the fact check on that was pretty pretty tough because it was all hallucinated. But at least at least it sort of got, got, identified some people I should be uh, looking into. There's also um, questions about there should be a moratorium on all this research. We need to stop it. Uh, I'm unclear that that's even possible, and I can easily imagine that bad actors in the world, and there are many of them out there, even though a big, a big piece of my lifetime message is trust, but there's a bunch of bad actors out there who are taking some of these open source models and building the thing you just sort of said humorously uh, that might exist as maybe a malevolent uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, and it could be really powerful. I mean, these, these things are, are hard to gate. Um, I can envision, without a lot of imagination, I can envision too many too many scenarios that do worry me, but I don't see any way to put the brakes on this. We need to actually can infect more people with good intentions while using these tools so that they can find and stop the people who are using them badly. So overlaying a few of the themes we've talked about is uh, organizations of cyborgs. So then we have the collective uh, intelligence, we have the ethics of having uh, organizations of cyborgs, uh, and you know, essentially how, how it is we build that into something which is both effective and has a positive impact on the world. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that's hard to imagine is that software is instantly and cheaply replicable. So not only could I have an agent out there doing my work in the world that is smart, I could have a hundred of them or a thousand of them. It, it really comes down to how many of them can I manage and how do they connect? And I can easily imagine that somebody's working on that problem about how do you delegate work across software agents uh, in different ways to create an, a, an army, basically a, a robot army 
for any person who can step into that and control them. And that's kind of crazy making. I mean, that, that's popping straight out of some good science fiction novels into our, our present reality. So we have to figure out what does collective intelligence or hive mind or uh, collaborative sense making look like? And what would, we, what would we like it to be? And is it like Wikipedia where there's a canonical page with the right answer for each thing? Like here's the page for carbon and this is what is allowed to be on the page for carbon. And you have to duke it out on the talk pages behind this page. And then only that gets seen. Or is it an overlapping hive mind where different constituencies wind up saying, here's what we believe and here's what they believe in a way that lets us compare notes, but doesn't force us to blend everything into the gray goo. Because the moment, the moment we're all forced to come up with the one canonical answer to everything, and here I'm really torn because I think truth matters and facts matter, but the moment we're all forced into the, the, the pressure cooker of having the same answer, that the consensus answer, meaning the answer everybody agrees to, those answers will be A, targets of all sorts of uh, bad pressure, and B, probably worthless. They'll, they'll wind up becoming unusable. Thinking about... Uh, for example, Bridgewater Associates, where everyone's encouraged to uh, be very difficult and contradict others, and uh, Andreessen Horowitz, where they have red teaming on major decisions. So this is all about disagreement, ultimately leading to a decision. So in a world of cyborgs, do we then get individual cyborgs having opposing views which resolve, or... Are they, are they within with the one cyborg? How does that uh, configured? It's who knows. Uh, there's a term called steel manning. <clears throat> so you've heard of straw man, right? The straw man argument you sort of put up. Steel manning is when you know your opponent's argument better than they do. You can represent the logic of their argument so well that they would like that they would agree with with that logic, and you can tell ChatGPT to go do this. You can you can sort of tell it to take both sides of an argument and present both things as if it were debating itself. Not a big problem there. So I think I think it may be easier to do these sorts of things. What's interesting to me is the boundary between um, facts and logic and faith and politics and argument, because a lot of what's happening out there is arguments on faith or uh, things that are really that really have no no basis in in data or results. They're just assumptions, uh, and, and assumptions that if the other side slowed down and agreed to abide by the data, uh, th their argument would probably melt. Um, they're very likely to be unwilling to do that, right? No, nobody wants their argument to fall apart. And so this space is going to get really contentious, and we have to worry and, and try to figure out how to navigate the waters of stories meeting factual narratives or causal narratives. And by the way, in a fight between emotions and facts, emotions win every time. So there could be this interesting battle between fact and fiction that we're entering as well as everything else we've talked about. Yes. And I'm just thinking as well that in a year or two, it could come back to sort of see if we have any URI or others of any structures to... Uh, facilitate this. But pulling back to the leader, let's say you're talking to a CEO. Are you going to say to him or her that you are now a leader of a organization of cyborgs? How is it that they should be thinking about 
and enabling. But, you know, is it a cyborg organization or is it an organization of cyborgs? And how does this work? I know it's, it's, it's really very interesting because on the one hand, uh, in the U.S., we have an association called AARP, the American Association of Retired People, which is now an obsolete name because nobody's really retiring, et cetera, et cetera. But they kind of claim to speak for people age whatever, 60 and over or something like that. And they don't speak for me because every time I get a mailer from them, I tear it up and, and, and throw it away. But they also, they're doing nothing to actually communicate with people. So they're a big centralized organization that's a huge lobbyist in, in our capital, D.C., but they don't really represent the people that they claim to represent. As opposed to Alcoholics Anonymous, where the structure is just given and people set up groups and there's a protocol and a method for going through the process and there's no money exchanging hands, which gives it a certain kind of authenticity and, and veracity and importance because the work that's being done there is really important work for humans, right? And those are two opposite kinds of organization. And part of what I'm playing with is, how do you do a highly decentralized organization that has some sense of rituals, connection, meaning, um, and some agreement on what is right and wrong to do, which is hard. I don't think that's easy work. But if you can set those things up, then everybody doesn't have to be like, I'm stunned by the fact that Facebook now has more monthly average users than the populations of China and India combined. And they are ruled by a single person who has dictatorial powers over the whole. Because that's how he worked out how the shares work. Um, that is incredible to me. That really is incredible to me. That then, And you could consider that to be the largest country on earth. Um, so we're already in those waters. That That's done. So this is the leaderless organization. So how do you configure or architect a leaderless organization that achieves, you know, objectives aligned alignment and where the cyborgs collectively go and get it done yes and there are people working on different parts of this like the indie web or the fediverse or several others that are working on federated distributed things the crypto people would say over here over here blockchain is distributed and so forth and i am just not a fan of what's happened over there i don't think it's contributing to the kinds of, of puzzles that we're thinking about here uh and then we're not i'm having trouble explaining what a shared memory looks like. Like, I can tell you what Wikipedia is, and you know what Wikipedia is because it's an encyclopedia on open source software that runs in a wiki style, that runs on these servers, is funded by donations. We can explain exactly what Wikipedia is, but what makes that easy is that it's only an encyclopedia. I can't use Wikipedia to tell you a story of why I think the global financial crisis happened, right? Uh, and I have a thesis about that. I put some videos online about the GFC just to try to storytell and to explain, you, you know, building on evidence why that happened. We don't have a place to share those sorts of things that we share an understanding about. Um, in a fit of pique with a sense, with a little bit of humor, I bought thebigfungus.org where there isn't much. It's just kind of a placeholder site. But I'm thinking that there's, the big fungus is a nice and metaphor for the shared knowledge web because mycelial links and um, mushrooms are just really great metaphors for almost everything. Um, and it works really well for shared knowledge. So what does that look like? What, when we start thinking together, what does that look like? And, that, and, and I have a second funny way of looking at it. When Zuckerberg renamed uh, Facebook as Meta and, talked, and went on his metaverse binge and spent tens of billions of dollars on worthless research, sorry people on that project, um, 
I bought the domain thebetterverse, I think .com. And because I'm like, hey, I don't think any of that floating around in 3D with, a, with an avatar head is going to lead to a better uh, universe. But if we figured out this shared wisdom, if we knew what we knew and made it better over time, in a, we could get to a better verse. So for me, all this talk about cyborgs and software and data and the future brings in some of those really big issues, because I, I think this is as, as large a transformation as programming was. Uh, when we first got into coding, and when we can see how much that transformed the world. So this we could go on talking forever, and then I think we might, we needed episode three before long. But I feel like I'm a helium balloon in this conversation, where you're like, okay, let's talk about this thing, and then I'm like, yes, but, and then I feel like I'm floating up in the chair, like up a couple of floors. Well, uh, so I mean, let, let's let's try to round out by getting it down to the ground. Uh, so, you know, the theme is amplifying cognition, and that is, all right, we've, we, we have incredible brains. So how do we amplify those? How do we make those better? And part of it is becoming cyborgs with uh, AI and other machines and technologies. So what would you suggest to people who want to amplify their cognitions or be a cyborg or be, be a better cyborg? What are, what are some of the steps? What's some of the, what is that journey that we need to uh, be on? A couple hours ago, I was in a conversation where the other side of the argument from me was that creating bodies of documents that make sense is too complicated. Most people won't engage in it. And I was like, but there's Wikipedia. And it doesn't matter that there's only a few people who did the organizing, but every, all, everybody else who touches it gets to benefit from it, no? And, and it, was, it was sort of disheartening because I really believe that more people would be eager to jump in and think together if the thinking was fun and if led to something if it led to something really productive and useful so for me that's a big piece of amplifying cognition it's like hey folks let's think together let's learn to think and let's step into some ways of sharing what we know and what we believe even sharing the 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 wild ass guesses that are probably wrong but it would be interesting then to compare notes and to say well it's wrong because this okay great and then you can change your mind and, and make that explicit out in this shared memory of some sort. So um, I think that starts by just learning to do note-taking and then figure out how to manifest what you see in some way that other people might be able to use. Could be in Obsidian, could be in Rome, could be in... There's a whole bunch of sort of um, thinking tools or mapping tools. I happen to use the brain and really like it, but I'm extremely aware that it's not for everyone. Um, but then how do we collect this up so that it's a larger artifact that all humans can benefit from. It's a little bit like the foundation library that that uh, that the foundation series was was looking at way back when. It's like you know how do we how do we create a library because we're we're going to destroy civilization. We need to build a library somewhere far enough away that it survives the destruction so that we can rebuild ourselves later on. I'm not quite at that plot point, but it sometimes feels like a project sort of like that. Yes, I. And the thing is, I, conversation is perhaps the most wonderful thing in the universe, but there's also the writing or words or any or visual things, anything that it takes our thoughts out in a way that others can engage with them is, is I think, the foundations of the collective intelligence. But then, and then I, I think part of it is also how do we use the AI in that piece of taking or integrating or the pieces of what it is we 
we are thinking that expression. But I, I absolutely agree that you know people do need to be uh, capturing things. And it is fun. I mean, uh, I have a whole series of lessons from using my brain for 25 years. And one of the lessons is that uh, using the brain forces me or switches me into system two thinking all the time. And in, in uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, Danny Kahneman says, system one is your instinctive response, your quick answer. And system two is when you have to slow down and piece things out and make them make sense. And what happens to me is I, something floats by in the info torrent and I'm like, oh, that's worth remembering. Okay, good. That's the first question. Where does it go? What do I name it? What can I learn from it? What is it connected to? How, you know, and then I, 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 and I've gotten to where I can do that little loop very quickly. That is a piece of the kind of thinking that, that I'm talking about. And too many of us are just overwhelmed by the info torrent. We're drowning in the info flood. And every year somebody invents a new tool like Snapchat or TikTok or what have you that we all seem to have to go get on. And all of this is flow. And we don't have good tools to capture the good stuff and put it someplace where it'll last a little longer. So you are setting up a community of ethical cyborgs, is that right? That's the goal. It's, uh, it's not set up yet, but that's that. I've been having several of those conversations just this week and it feels like we're on parallel paths here. Well, I'll uh, help get word out when that comes out. Anything that uh, you want to point people to, uh, to who want to know more about what you do? Sure. I'm easily found at jerrymikulski.com, jerrysbrain.com. The community that I started three years ago at the start of lockdown is called openglobalmindalso.com. And you can join those conversations. We have several standing calls every week where we haven't written a lot of code, but we've, we've sort of turned over all these issues to the point where we're getting somewhere, I think, with, with our understanding of the shape of the problem and whom to go talk to about what. So those are some places to, to find me. Uh, and if you go to jerrysbrain.com, you can you can browse my brain for free by clicking on launch Jerry's brain. Yep, and we'll be uh, they'll all be in the show notes. So thank you for all of the wonderful work that you do, Jerry. Uh, Ross, same here, and it's uh, just ex exciting to see like how similar our thinking is. Thank you for listening to the show. If you really want to amplify your cognition, go to amplifyingcognition.com, where you can access a trove of useful resources to make your mind better and more effective than ever before. If you liked this episode, please do help us be found by giving us a rating or review and subscribe if you want to hear more of this. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.